0: Welcome to Talking in Vain, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. I'm Don Barrent, the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for the INS. I'm going to start out reading an excerpt from the beginning of the book where Marcus, the main character, describes himself. The main character. Marcus Engel, a.k.a. the patient. That's me, by the way. An 18-year-old college freshman. Newly blind, battling through extreme, extreme facial trauma and a variety of other disfiguring and life threatening injuries, all of which were caused by a drunk driver's irresponsible choice to get behind the wheel. Marcus is angry, frustrated, in horrible pain, and vulnerable completely vulnerable. He relies on you, his family, and other medical personnel for every aspect of his care. He has no choice. He is simply to hurt for other options. Chapter 4. Meat Hooks Man, Marcus, you've got some big hands. You could hang a side of beef from those meat hooks. A nurse says, smiling, sliding an IV needle into the back of my right hand, I'm used to working with little old ladies who have these tiny little veins. You've got these big, thick veins the size of fire hoses. You make my job easy. I'm still to hurt to smile, but I do smirk a bit on the inside. I like this nurse. She's not treating me like a fragile invalid, but like the tough football-playing guy I'd been just days before. And that idea of meat hooks for hands, yeah, that's a compliment. I like her. The ripping sound of tape fills my ears. Her hand gently lifts mine, and I feel a piece of tape spread over the IV catheter. There you go, Marcus. I'm going to give your meat hooks back to you now. Hit the call light if you need anything, okay? I nod and I wish she could stay with me. She cannot, but she does appear every so often to check in on me. And every time she says, Hey, Meat Hooks, how are ya? I cannot respond, other than with some hand signals. I lift one hand and wave it side to side, trying to make a sign that I'm hearing her, but not doing so well. She understands. I'll give you some painkiller, she says lightly, and she grasps my fingers to get a better view of my IV. I'm telling you, Meat Hooks, you've got the biggest hands I've seen in a long time. Her tone is complimentary. I grin inside. I'm doing better now. She recognizes that I'm young that I was strong before this horrible crash, and she's giving me some reason to believe I'm still a stud, if I ever was one in the first place. Meat Hooks. This nickname indicates strength, toughness, and power. Something I'd been before, but not how I felt post-crash. Still, my former self would have loved the nickname, had it been given in a locker room. Now, I just loved it because it showed this nurse had a special place for her young patient with big hands. I'm delighted to introduce my guest today, Marcus Ingle. Marcus is an individual who speaks from experience. He tells about a journey that isn't always pretty, but one that's here to help healthcare professionals understand their vital role in patients' experience. Marcus holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Sociology from Missouri State University and a Master's degree in Narrative Medicine from Columbia University in the city of New York. Marcus has received an honorary doctorate from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine and is adjunct faculty at University of Notre Dame, where he teaches pre-med students the art of being with. His work with the I'm Here movement is a reminder of presence in healthcare and is changing the culture of care through two simple words. Marcus, thank you so much for being my guest today on Talking in Vain.
1: Thank you. Great, to, great to chat with you.
0: Marcus, I'm going to ask you to tell us about your story. Give us the background and take us back to an event that changed your life.
1: Sure thing. So an event way back when? Well, when I was a freshman in college, and this is going back to the early 1990s, uh, 1993 in fact, I was a freshman at Missouri State University. I grew up on a farm just outside of St. Louis, and that, uh, that during that freshman year, my, my first weekend home, I came home and went to a St. Louis Blues hockey game with some friends, and it was on our way home from that game that the car that we were all riding in was struck broadside by a drunk driver. And that crash not only crushed every bone in my face, uh, what surgeons refer to as a LaForte three fracture, but I also had bilateral blindness, sight loss immediately, instantaneously, uh, and totally. So from that intersection, I was rushed to nearest level one trauma center, which was Barnes Hospital, uh, Washington University's med school in St. Louis, their teaching hospital. Uh, Fortunately, I was only about three miles away from that level one trauma center. And the night that they rolled me into the ER, there was a 20-year-old patient care tech who held my hand the whole night and who just kept whispering and and repeating the two most compassionate words that I think any human being can ever say to another, and those words are, I'm here. As Jennifer held my hand that night, she just comforted me with her presence and the, the reinforcement that she was actually present, attentive, aware in that moment of my suffering. Now, as a 20-year-old patient care tech, she could do nothing except hold my hand, right? She's not a trauma surgeon. She is not a radiologist. She, she can't do the, the x-rays. And she, she's a tech. And yet she gave me the greatest gift that I think any human being can give another, and that is the gift of human presence.
0: Wow. Well said. You have a book, Marcus, that's entitled, I'm Here. Yes. Let's talk about what it means to be present with someone.
1: What does being present with another human being look like? I, I have the f- good fortune these days of uh, being a professor. I'm an adjunct professor at uh, University of Notre Dame, and I teach a class called the Pathos Project and pathos is greek for suffering and what we do with these future docs is teach them the art of being with another person how can how can healthcare professionals how can clinical professional how can human beings be like jennifer how can they be present for another human being and offer that gift of presence well how do we do it i i, I think we come back to a a A working definition that we use in class, which is compassion, is witnessing suffering, being moved by that suffering, and having a desire to ease that suffering. So the definition of compassion that we use is witnessing suffering, being moved by that suffering, and having the desire to ease the suffering. And that is what Jennifer could do for me that night. So how do, we, how, do, how do we practice presence? How can we stay present like Jennifer was that night? I think first thing is to simply acknowledge that in this world of healthcare, we have so many different things to juggle, right? Um, especially those of, of your listeners who are nurses, there are so many distractions that go on on the job. Plus, the, the, the job of nursing is, is physically hard work. And I'm, I'm specifically speaking um, to, the, to the work of many of the acute care professionals like I had during, during my hospitalization. Um, but I, I know that we have infusion nurse professionals all across the gamut. So I've been the, the, the recipient of that type of care as well, where even if you're only with a patient for a short time, even if there's nothing else that you can offer that patient, you can offer them the gift of presence, that gift that Jennifer gave me the night that my life changed.
0: Marcus, you touched on a lot of really important things there. Let's talk about the healthcare professional's work day. There are times in every healthcare professional's day where we are just simply needing to get from point A to point B. And in the midst of a busy, bustling healthcare environment, we interact with our patients. And there are times when we just have so many things on our minds. Um we have other patients, we have other concerns, we're trying to answer pages, and help our fellow clinicians. And yet, in the midst of everything that's happening, we must be present, fully present, with a singular patient. And sometimes getting our mind and our personal sense of self or presence together to be singularly focused on one individual takes some skill. What is the reaction that you receive from providers and clinicians whom you are teaching right now. And are they really grasping what it means to be present and how essential that is?
1: The, the feedback that we're getting from my pre-meds, uh, it is amazing. Um, they, they do several different writing projects each semester that that they have to one of one of their writing projects is to write a paper about their volunteer experience so the students are tasked their volunteer learning experiences to go into places like um, the Ronald McDonald House and there are 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 several uh, skilled and and assisted living nursing facilities around Notre Dame's campus so they go in there there to be with human beings who are suffering and to do what they can as a volunteer. Students are, are given the opportunity and the task of observing their own behavior and observing how other human beings are hurting and they're there to offer their presence. So in, in their volunteer roles, students are holding the hands of, of nursing home patients they are taking care of children who are sick they are uh, volunteering for big brothers big sisters Uh, all types of different experiences where they are having to 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 work with human beings who are suffering and how did how do we not just oh let's say become immune to the suffering of others nurses are first and foremost human beings right and as human beings we are all we are all uh, so mm-hmm. able to slip into unconscious thought patterns and unconscious behaviors. How do we stay present in this moment? And so I, I remind, I always want to remind those who are, are, are taking care of patients it's a typical work day for you. It's Tuesday, you're putting in your eight or 12 hours, it's your typical work day this is quite possibly the worst day of your patient's life. And in that moment, knowing, just remembering that this is the worst day of that patient's life, I hope it helps people remember that we we all know what suffering is, we're all human beings. Human suffering is a part of being a human being and we all can relate to that. How do we just get uh, reminded to be present back in that moment with patients and remembering their suffering suffering, and how we can help ease that with intentional, mindful presence.
0: Okay, wonderful. Thank you for that explanation. So we're going to take our discussion back to the past again. Let's go back to your story. You are an 18-year-old young man whose life has been abruptly changed. You are in a hospital room. You can't see. You're in excruciating pain. Tell us about the sense of vulnerability that you felt as a patient.
1: My vulnerability in that moment, whenever I was finally conscious enough to, to understand what had happened and where I was, um, I woke up came to consciousness to a world where I could not see and I, I could barely hear anything because of all the swelling throughout my head and my ear canal was cut in two. Um, I couldn't smell. I I, I I guess I could taste, but it was only blood and chemicals and medicine that I tasted. And every part of my body just felt like it had been beaten with a sledgehammer. So I woke up either missing some of my five major senses or what sensations that I did have were negative, were painful. When I came into that world, I, I, I'm i not only blind, but due to the fact that I have a Lafort three fracture and I was criked, at the scene, I'm also mute. I cannot speak. And trying to communicate the horrors that I was going through, both in pain and the hallucinations from morphine and and narcotics, I, I just trying to have simple communication with my caregivers and my family was of of utmost importance, as you can imagine.
0: So... You were probably as vulnerable as you had ever been in your whole life. Yeah. And establishing trust with your caregivers would seem so essential. You you really needed to know who was at the side of your bed and the role that that person played in your care. Right. Tell us about how you worked through those issues of trust and were Able not only to enjoy the presence of someone at your bedside who was there to help you, but how you helped them understand what you needed.
1: One of the one of the ways, the the only way that I could communicate during that time was by writing everything out on a tablet, uh, longhand with a you know a pencil and paper. When I would write to people. Sometimes the message didn't get through. Um, you have to keep in mind that I'm blind. I'm seriously terribly injured here, and I'm also on a lot of heavy narcotics, and sometimes people would and sometimes people would not take the time to really understand what I was writing to them. Um, I, I remember those who learned to communicate with me the best would knock at, the, at, the, at my door announce their presence before they came over to the bed. And they would also, once they got close to the bed, would verbally talk to me so that I could, I, I, would know where they were. And then they would also tell me where they were going to touch me and when they were going to touch me. I had obviously no visual point of reference to know if hands were coming at me. So not only when hands would touch me, would it startle me, but it would startle me and there would also be just mountains of pain. Those nurses who took the time to, to attentively be in that moment uh, to not startle me and not scare me and to give me all the little bits of information in the order that I needed them, those were the nurses that really stuck with me as such positive experiences.
0: Okay, okay. Can you tell our listeners about Watchdog?
1: Watchdog, uh, you know, I I understand it. Because I was a a long-term patient, I, I received many, many gifts. And a lot of the gifts that hospitalized patients receive are things like flowers and cards and candy and books and magazines, things that I couldn't utilize. And so a friend got me a, a stuffed animal, and I've always been a dog lover. And this was a stuffed dog who had big, floppy ears. And he, um, I just kept him with me at all times because he kind of gave me comfort. And one of the other interesting gifts that I received uh, was from my, my young cousin who found a, who found a, a, a talking watch again this is back in the early 90s technology where you press a button on the side of the watch and it would announce the time it's 1028 a.m so I, I would um, I would keep the dog with me all the time because it gave me comfort and then I would keep the watch with me because it gave me independence and one night I, I woke up and I couldn't couldn't find either one and I pressed my nurse call button and my favorite nurse, Barb happened to be on duty that night. She came into the room and I and I wrote out to her, I can't find my dog and I can't find my watch. And so she looks around and she helps me find them and she picks up the watch and she picks up the dog and she takes the dog and wraps the watch around his neck. And from that moment on I thought, I have a watchdog. <laughs> and so with my with my watchdog, who just gave me so much comfort during that time, um, Barb also was so innovative in her nursing approach because she made, okay, now instead of finding two things, you only have to find one thing and the one thing is attached to the other thing. So it actually was a little bit like occupational therapy on me.
0: Definitely. So, it sounds a bit funny and I even chuckled just a bit as you were telling the last part of the story, but Watchdog was very serious for you. Tell a little more about that.
1: He was he became my security item, one of my security items when I was hospitalized. And it doesn't always make uh it doesn't always make a lot of sense. You know, I'm I'm an eighteen year old college freshman at this time. I'm a I'm a former football player. I'm 250 pounds. I'm six foot one. I, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense for an 18-year-old man to need uh, a stuffed animal, but it doesn't always make sense. If, if trauma doesn't always make sense, right? And and disease doesn't always make sense. So so I I, I was so. Um, I, I, I loved my my watchdog so much and when patients or when when patients when clinicians would come and talk to me sometimes you know they would ask respectful questions and then you know sometimes it was like they'd just move him to the side without you know asking me if they could take him out of my hands and and I just thought it, it, it seems like such a good opportunity for healthcare professionals to to take a moment to be aware of what are the security items that patients have. And maybe it's, maybe it's a stuffed animal like I have. These days it's probably their, their phone or their tablet. Um, but whatever those security items are, please remember to be respectful of those because sometimes it may not make sense like an 18 year old guy needing a stuffed animal. But as long as it, it, it brings our patients some comfort Feel free to engage them about this this security
0: item. Okay, thank you. So, at the beginning of our podcast, I read aloud an excerpt from a chapter of your book, The Other End of the Stethoscope. The chapter was entitled Meat Hooks, and it tells about a nurse who placed an IV in your hand, but she did more than that for you. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story?
1: Sure, sure. So Meat Hooks was a nickname that one of my very, very, um, very, very wonderful ICU nurses gave to me. Now, you might not think that that is such a great nickname to have, but this nurse, at the 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 time I was her patient, um, I I had basically been crushed. Right. My, my entire body was, was just absolutely pulverized, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. I, I, both of my legs were in traction. I could not lift my head. I was on a ventilator. I can't even breathe for myself. And yet, when I was, um, when I was under the care of this nurse, she had to start IVs. For me, I was receiving such high-powered antibiotics that that uh, veins would just collapse after just a couple of a couple of doses, and I, I hated getting IVs. But I but I loved this nurse because she said to me, she says, Marcus, you know, I'm used to taking care of little old ladies. She said, but you you've got these big arms, you've got big hands. She said, you've got hands that you can hang a side of beef from. She's like, you got these big old meat hooks for at the ends of your arms. She said, I can find big veins here so easy. And she, she nicknamed me meat hooks. Now, again, that may not be the greatest nickname for somebody else, but for me at that point in life, I, I I was a young male. I was strong just minutes before this accident. And this nickname of meat hooks, it, it highlighted my strength. And, and I say in the other end of the stethoscope, you know, if she had tried to call me cutie or uh, something like that, that felt out of or out of congruency with my situation, um, with especially with having my face crushed, I wouldn't have, I don't wouldn't have wanted that. But she highlighted my strengths, and also I think just giving nicknames can sometimes help. A clinician build a better repertoire with their a better rapport with their patients. I think that patient feels that as a as as a a, a a the presence and the intention of the clinician.
0: Oh, I love that story. All right. Let's come back to the present. So you have authored four excellent books. Please tell our listeners how these books are being used and how your story is impacting healthcare providers.
1: Well, the, the two healthcare-specific books, I've written four books, the two healthcare-specific books are currently being utilized by, when we think about 70 or so nursing schools around the country. Uh, a lot of times in introduction to nursing and then also a lot of times in leadership class, at the end of, um, at the end of nursing school, we're, we all, I, I love that so many different nursing faculty are using it to try to help um, help from, from the very outset of, of student nurses' education, help them understand that there is life at the other end of the stethoscope. It's not just skills, it's not just techniques, it's, it's this is a human being that you're working on. And that, that as, as patients, we all have some universal traits of vulnerability uh, and suffering, and how can those young student nurses go into their profession remembering that they have that the ability to be present like Jennifer, uh, to be attentive and to be mindful like those healthcare professionals that remembered to touch me before or, or to tell me before they touched me.
0: Well, I, for one, highly recommend your books as a must read for every healthcare professional. It is so good for us to consider what the patient hears, what the patient is feeling, but may not be telling us. It's all so important. Let's talk about your book entitled Everyday Inspiration. I wanted to ask you to talk about this work before we close our conversation today. There's a section in the book where you tell about forgiveness. And you've had a lot of questions from people about forgiveness. Perhaps about the driver that caused the accident. Tell us about that, about the questions, about people's curiosity about forgiveness, and where you are along that journey. So
1: the, the, as, as we talked about earlier, the, the crash that, that took my sight and that put me through uh, 300 hours worth of reconstructed facial surgery um, the the driver of the other car that hit my friends and I had a blood alcohol concentration of .17. Um, that that blood alcohol concentration reading was taken four hours after the crash. And um, so when when I first learned that I would be blind, and it really all rests at the at the hands of someone else, um, you can certainly go through a lot of emotions, right? There's there's hatred, there's blame, there's um, terror, there's rage, there's fear, there's all of these things. And I, I I'm I'm I don't know if I'm the greatest picture of forgiveness in moving on. I, I think that for, for thousands of years theologians and Gurus and mystics and religious leaders and prophets have all all talked about forgiveness. And I'm I'm not sure that my my method of forgiveness is exactly in line with anyone's, but it kind of works for me. Ultimately, um, for me, forgiveness became a selfish choice. I I had to determine that, okay, my, my fight was lost because of this other individual's actions. But if I continue to harbor hate and resentment and anger, does it actually affect the person who I, at that point, hated, resented, and angered? It did not. It did not affect him in any way. Who did it affect? It affected me. And I decided at some point, okay, you, drunk driver, took my sight, but I'm not going to give you my future, and I'm not going to give you my happiness, and I'm not going to give you my joy by only focusing on this loss. I still have life. I still have breath. I still have my mind, and Some days, to me, forgiveness simply means remembering that we are alive and that life is a gift. And it sometimes isn't a mountaintop experience. Sometimes it means just putting your shoes on and going to work, you know, and moving on with life as best you can. Uh, Forgiveness is sometimes one of those things that's two steps forward, one step back. Uh, But at this point in my life, I've definitely come to a point of peace with, with the fact that this was an unintentional action that still had horrible consequences.
0: So well said. So well said. And I really appreciate your take on that. I like the fact that over the years, you probably have been very careful about that conversation and you have been very honest about your own feelings. And I'm very certain that getting to a place of peace has been a real process. And yet you have shown a lot of fortitude and you've pressed on even in the toughest and most challenging days.
1: Good. I'm glad that comes across <laughs> because we, we we have so much more power than, than we think that we have. We have so much more power than we think that we have. And And I I think it all starts with an attitude of gratitude and of of believing that this this is a gift that we get. We get this gift of life, and let's use it um, for the good that we can for humanity while we're here.
0: Marcus, I would like to give you a little more mic time here. Are there one or two messages that you would like this listening audience to take home today?
1: The message that I hope every clinical professional can take away is, is to be like Jennifer, to be present, to use those words, I'm here, when you witness a patient suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, patients are, are vulnerable. They are, they are scared. They are hurting, and they're suffering. And in those moments, we all have the ability to be present. It doesn't matter if you've got RN after your name or MD or no letters at all. We all can give another human being who is suffering that gift of human presence. Um, that's what I always want to come back to. That, to me, is just the true basis of humanity. And, and
0: that's, that's,
1: that's, my, that's, that's the Marcus message right there.
0: Thank you so much, Marcus. I have truly enjoyed this conversation, and I look forward to future conversations with you as well. I wish you well on your continued work, and I thank you so much for being my guest today on Talking in Vain.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.